This podcast series is not meant for retail investors, but instead is meant for financial advice and investment professionals. Please refer to IMAP's website, imap.asn.au, for more details. So welcome to this podcast in the IMAP Independent Thought Series. Today, I'm joined by Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at the AMP. Welcome, Shane. Thanks, David. Great to be here. So, obviously, a lot happening both domestically and globally. We've got inflation, interest rates, recession fears, everything's in the headlines at the moment. So, I think plenty to talk about there. Perhaps just to start, I thought it was very interesting that you published a note recently that looked at the lessons from the 70s, 80s, I think even 90s, and compared to, to where we are now. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention that we both worked together in the 80s that long ago. <laughs> uh, so would you like to share some of the findings from that for us? Like, particularly, you know, are we headed for a similar period and what should we do to avoid it if we are? Yeah, sure. And, yes, we did work together way back then, um, which was in the... Well, I guess in the midst of it still, you know, we're still recovering from the very high inflation of the 70s. And we didn't really get inflation down fully until the 1990s. But, I mean, that, that period is worth thinking about. And, and many people wonder why the Reserve Bank is going so tough. You know, why do we have to worry about a little bit of inflation? Uh, you know, didn't we always want inflation to be higher? Because the, mm. Prior to the pandemic, the concern was inflation was too low. But... Um, it, it is worth looking at that period because inflation started off mainly due to supply side factors, not solely, but partly big factor in there. Uh, central banks let it sort of gradually get out of control. They realised they had a problem and then started putting their brakes on. But then uh, as soon as things slowed down, they took the brakes off too early. Um, and then, of course, the inflation problem would would reappear and come back worse than ever. Uh, and so we had this sort of period of stop-go monetary policy through the 70s. Uh, we finally got rid of it in the US with very aggressive uh, monetary policy by Paul Volcker, the then US Federal Reserve Chair, um, chairperson at the time, and that led to a double uh, set of recessions in the early 1980s. And in Australia, we didn't really get rid of it till the early 1990s. But there was, there was a bunch of key lessons from it. I mean, some things don't work. Price freezes don't work. Uh, just getting everyone to have a wage rise to catch up to inflation just locks in the high inflation. Um, yeah, getting rid of central bank governors doesn't work. The US tried that with uh, replacing um, uh, Martin with, uh, with uh, Arthur Burns in the early 1970s, which ultimately just perpetuated the inflation problem. Uh, getting the government to do things might sound, sound fine in theory, but governments tend to lack the political will to do things, to inflict the pain, to, to slow yeah. things down. Yeah. So you really got to rely on the Reserve Bank. But I, I think the key lesson from that period is, well, there's two key lessons. Firstly, that yeah, you, you've got to try and nip it in the bud fairly early um, because the longer it persists, the more inflation is built into people's expectations. They behave in ways via wage setting, price setting and so on that becomes accepting of high inflation and then it's very hard to get rid of. Uh, and that, of course, explains why we had to have severe recessions to get rid of inflation. I guess the other the other lesson from the late uh, the latter part of the period, or the early nineties, in fact, was that there are these monetary policy lags. So there is a risk of, as the Reserve Bank governor says, not doing enough to control inflation, letting it get out of hand. The other risk is uh, doing too much, 
And yeah. I, I suspect that that's probably a greater risk, although the Reserve Bank at the moment disagrees. Uh, and the reason I say there's a risk of doing too much is that we saw through the late 80s, uh, the central bank raised rates aggressively in Australia, kept going, unemployment kept falling. The conclusion was that it doesn't work, and then suddenly it did work in the early 1990s, and they'd gone too far, and by then it was too late. We plunged into the recession we didn't have to have. So it is an instructive period to look at. There's no simple answers to this, but ultimately it does come back to central banks. Yeah, okay. I mean, the, you know, the Reserve Bank, I think, seemed to be suggesting late last year that maybe there wasn't much more to go, or certainly that's what the market thought, and or even a couple of people suggesting they might even have a pause. And then I think the February meeting seemed to shock markets, and they came out and said, no, no, there's actually a lot more to go. So what I guess is one of the findings from your, your study that they should do a lot more to make sure it, it gets under control. Well, yeah, but I think we're, I mean, you could argue that, that the study argues for, you know, for being quite aggressive and that, of course, that is what they've done. Um, but th there's a counter to that where if you don't allow for the lags, you end up going too far. So it's a bit of a balancing act. And I must admit, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to claim that I was misled by the Reserve Bank. Um, I think we all we all had a, yeah, well, well, I had a degree of optimism that inflation was close to peaking. I, I think, still think it is. Uh, and, and then we got the December quarter numbers, which showed the underlying measures of inflation, what they call the trim mean, was higher than they expected, 6.9% rather than 6.5%. And that seems to explain, or seems to largely explain why there's so much more, um, I, I guess, hawkish compared to where they were in December. Um, but it, it, at the end of last year, I thought we were getting pretty close to the top, uh, if not already at it. Um, but the inflation number seemed to blow that out of the water. Then the Reserve Bank's reaction to that was a lot more hawkish than I would have thought would be justified. Uh, right. And we are where we are now. And they're now signalling that uh, they might have to do several more hikes, at least two more hikes. Um, but, but I worry that they're just driving the car with a rear-view mirror <laughs> and therefore we'll end up um, uh, going from one extreme to the other and, and find ourselves in recession. Fingers crossed we won't, um, and it's yeah. not a base case, but it's a risk. Maybe We'll talk perhaps about recession risks and, and so on here and globally in, in a little while. But So, I mean, we're not headed back for 17% mortgages again, thankfully, but how many more hikes do you think we'll see now? Well, our base case is just one more, even though the RBA is saying a couple more, um, and and we think we will get a run of strong, a softer data, which will enable the Reserve Bank to, well, they're probably going to almost certainly hike in the next week, uh, and then pause after that. Probably still signalling they're going to do more, but ultimately the the softer data will dissuade them from doing that. Um, so that's that's our base case, but I'm also conscious that other economists out there are factoring in many more. Um, yes. uh, many talking about 4.1% as the peak. The money market has now moved up to about 4.3, for the peak. So uh, that's certainly where the risks are skewed. They're still skewed on the upside. And there's always this debate economists have, you know, what, what they should do, <laughs> we think they should have a pause now um, and take it a bit easy for a while, and what they will do. And, of course, uh, you know, they determine what they will do, but ultimately time will tell whether that's the right thing or not. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned just one of the other things you said from the history lessons was putting wages up to match inflation is not the answer. And 
we've certainly seen a lot of that, particularly it seems from people like nurses and teachers that are probably not paid that well in the first place, saying, well, why are we getting a two and a half, three percent wage rise when inflation six, seven, eight percent? Um, you don't think that's a risk locally then. You don't see wages breaking out too much. Well, it, it's certainly a risk, and that's what the Reserve Bank keeps worrying about. Um, and the logic is simple. Yes, inflation's 8%, and I should get a wage rise to compensate for that. And the labour market is very tight, so uh, worker bargaining power is higher than normal or higher than it's been for the last 30 or 40 years. So that uh, um, obviously adds the risk. But so far, there's not a lot of evidence of that. The, the enterprise bargaining agreements, which account for something like 15% of wages, are sort of running around you know, 3%. Um, it's mainly individual contracts, individual agreements where the faster increases are coming through. Um, there was a survey by the Melbourne Institute, Survey of Consumers, and they're, they're talking about wages growth running at pretty moderate levels, you know, around 3%. And of course, the most recent wages uh, data from the ABS showed again wage inflation running around 3.3%. So the risk is there, but I, I lead to the view that, we, yes, we may see it in certain pockets, but I don't think it's going to be a generalised thing. But obviously right. it is a risk. It's logical for people to ask for a higher wage rise given the, the level of inflation. But, of course, if we all do that, costs go up and we get another round of strong price rises and we end up chasing our tails. Yeah, indeed. Maybe one last thing on the the 70s and, and so on, Shane, before we move on to today a bit more. I mean, the, the 1970s particularly was a decade where both bonds and equities had very poor returns. Do you see low returns in the next five, ten years because of where we are now? Is, is that a, a, a thing in terms of your outlook for markets? Do you, do you think the you know, 8-10% super fund returns we've seen in the last decade are not going to be repeated? Uh, well, on our numbers, they won't be. We, we sort of look at current investment yields and reasonable nominal capital growth assumptions, and we don't get numbers that high. We get numbers <laughs> quite a bit lower than that. So, um, yeah, more like 6.5%. I think we have to allow, and this certainly benefited us, us earlier in our careers or our superannuation, that that period in the into the 80s, uh, the early 80s particularly, started with very high bond yields, low PEs on shares, high inflation. As we moved from very high inflation to very low inflation, that enabled bond yields, interest rates to come down and growth assets like shares and property and infrastructure and so on to be revalued upwards. And so that provided a fantastic tailwind for investment returns. And at various points there, superannuation funds were typically providing double-digit returns. Not every year there was the 87 crash, but on average, you know, the run of mm-hmm. 10 years, they were well yeah. into double digits. That, that, that period is now behind us. The tailwind from falling inflation is probably over. Uh, we've come into a more inflation-prone world. Uh, Globalisation is in reverse. Um, you can see that all around us uh, yeah, with attempts to bring supply chains back onshore, um, issues with trading with China and so on. Um, had been a big government, you know, the reversal of you know, the supply side reforms of the uh, the 80s and 90s, uh, more regulation and so on. All, all of those things make the world more inflation prone. So I think a more realistic assumption is 
yes, that inflation does come back down, but doesn't go quite as low as it was pre-pandemic. Um, and that you know, a reasonable expectation for superannuation returns is more like 6.5% or thereabouts. Right. Okay, thanks. Now, um, we talked briefly earlier about the outlook and potential recessions and so on, and I gather you're not too concerned about Australia, but what about the rest of the world? Do you see a recession definitely happening in the US and probably yeah. Europe as well? Look, I think it's high risk. Uh, it, it's, it's. I mean, if you'd asked me this question late last year, I'd say the risk was higher than it is right now. Recent uh, business surveys have shown some improvement, some resilience. Um, I mean, the mate, the basic argument for a recession is that monetary policy has been tightened significantly. Uh, the yield curves, which is a standard tool that economists look at to see whether economic conditions are expansionary or contractionary, they've inverted. So 10-year bond yields have fallen below short-term interest rates because short-term interest rates have gone up. And historically, that provides a disincentive to borrow and lend long or invest. Uh, and historically, in the US, um, there's about a 12 to 18-month lag from a yield curve inverting, short rates above long rates, uh, to a recession. Uh, the yield curve that I prefer, inverted late last year so that it suggests a risk of recession later this year or early uh, 2024. Um, so that that's certainly a risk. I, I think in, in the US, it's 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 probably 50-50 as to whether we get there or not. Some other indicators aren't quite as bad. Right. Um, in Europe, I thought the risk there was almost certain recession, but they've done a good job of getting their gas uh, prices down and their gas reserves under control helped by a bit of good luck with the weather, mild winter in Europe. Yes, uh, yeah. So that's reduced the risk there. The other factor that's come along, of course, is that China has reopened and they're seeing the sort of rebound in economic growth that we were seeing you know, a year or so ago. So they that, that's going to provide an offset to weakness in the Europe and in Europe and the US. And therefore, on average, globally, I don't think we're going to see a recession, even though you know, there is a high risk in the US and Europe or both. Okay, thanks. Now, I mean, China, you mentioned China, obviously, it's probably more important for Australia than what happens in the US and Europe, particularly from an export point of view. Um, how do you see China now post-reopening? Is There's a lot of talk about a much slower growth outlook there. Do you think that that's fair? I, I think it probably is. Uh, yeah, but look, China will see a cyclical rebound, much like uh, other countries have after they reopen from COVID. And there's pent-up demand there, and that will be unleashed, and growth this year will probably be 6% after 3% last year. Um, but I shouldn't, I wouldn't confuse that with the longer-term trend, which is towards slower growth in China. Uh, go back 15 years ago, it was quite normal to think of Chinese growth potential and longer-term growth running around 8 9 10%. Uh, it has been stepping down in recent times, down towards the five and a half, six percent pace. Obviously, weaker last year for COVID-related reasons. Uh, I think in the years ahead, it's probably going to be stepping down again towards maybe over the next decade, probably down towards three and a half percent. And and there's a bunch of factors involved in that. Their population is now falling, so they're not getting a, a tailwind of growth from an expanding workforce, uh, and their productivity growth. Yeah, it's still solid, but it's going to slow down because once you start intervening in the economy and directing it more like the Chinese government is doing recently, that entrepreneurial spirit is is dampened a little bit, uh, which adversely affects economic growth. 
and uh, and some of the levers that they've pulled over the years to to spur growth have sort of run their course. You know, you, you, they've had the export surge; they're not as competitive as they used to be. They've had the investment surge; they've had the the property boom. <laughs> Those things are sort of now a bit spent. So I, I think Chinese growth will trend down towards, or sustainable growth will trend down towards three three and a half percent over the next decade. I guess the next question is, is that a big problem for Australia? I think if it occurs over time, then we will gradually move on to other countries, just as we did as China, as Japanese growth slowed down, we'll, we'll find other countries. And India is an obvious example of one that provides huge opportunities on a longer-term basis. Right. I, I guess one thing that was always raised with the India-China comparison was that India is probably a bit more commodity-endowed, if you like, than, than China, and given our export tilt to that area, that might be a, a problem in terms of, of making up for what might be lost in China. Yeah, it, it, won't, it won't fill the gap to the same extent. It will help in some areas, um, but not all of them. I mean, they don't have a lot of coal. Um, the only problem there is that coal is going out of fashion globally. Yes. Um, uh, in other areas, they have more. Um, but then there's still a lot, lot of other countries, Vietnam, uh, one uh, back to our near neighbours, Indonesia, and so on. So, I think one of the benefits of Australia's resource endowment is that we seem to be able to find other countries as time goes by. The other, the other fact that will help over the next decade is uh, decarbonisation, which will mean more demand for metals. Obviously, in time, it'll mean less demand for gas and coal, particularly coal. Um, but that retooling of the world economy to make it um, less uh, carbon intensive uh, will mean more demand for metals um, yes, going yeah, into electric sure. cars and so on. And I guess even places like India are still sending a lot of students to Australia and it's another big export for us these days. That's right. The focus is shifting towards services and away from some of the commodities. Can we talk just a little bit more, Shane, about the local consumer and spending still seems to be quite strong. I think I saw in your note you talked about revenge spending. At least that's a, a post-COVID thing, and I've seen articles talking about revenge travel. Everyone <laughs> going overseas because they couldn't go for the last so many years. But then, you know, we hear about the mortgage cliff coming and as fixed rates go off and how that will impact people. And I've seen weaker results the last week or so from people like JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman and so on, suggesting things might be slowing. Where do you see the consumer locally, do you think? It is starting to ease off. Yeah, I, I think it's starting to ease off. Um, and it's amazing the transformation perce perceptions that has occurred in the last six weeks. When JB Hi-Fi first put out a, uh, an update in January, I mean, it all seemed very upbeat. Consumer wasn't slowing, but then as the profit reporting season came along and they reported as part of that, reported their formal profit results, it looked like things had actually slowed down through the second half of last year, particularly in the December quarter, and the, the start of the year was so-so. Um, and other retailers have said something similar. Not, it's not universal, but you did get this impression that the, the, the combination of higher interest rates, which are taking a lot away from... Uh, groups or households which normally drive a lot of spending. Uh, people who um, have a big mortgage and are usually 25 to 40 or something like that, yes. that, that group tends to change their spending a lot more than people like you and me whose families have grown up and the mortgage is under control and 
our spending patterns don't change that dramatically uh, in response to changes in our free cash flow. So th- th- there will be a big impact coming through. It's starting to become apparent in some of the anecdotes from companies, not all of them, but it's starting to become more apparent. And when you look at the retail sales figures, uh, which came out just today uh, for um, January, it showed that uh, retail sales rebounded in January, but over the whole period since September, they've actually gone sideways, uh, which means in real terms, they've fallen. And over the last year, in fact, they're they're just flat. They're up 7.5%. Inflation's about 7.8 or thereabouts. And that means over the last year, they're, they're, they're not, they've not gone anywhere. And recently, they've, they've gone down in real terms. So it looks right. to me like the fall in consumer confidence, the hit from higher interest rates, the cost of living um, issues uh, are impacting. And you mentioned the fixed mortgage clear fund. I know. We've been talking about that one for such a long time, and as we get closer to it, we start thinking, "Well, maybe it's not going to have any impact." But it must have some impact, you know. When you uh, double people's mortgage payments and their debt uh, cost, debt servicing bill, you know, you must have some impact. So it's a bit hard to believe that it's not going to have any impact. I mean, somebody, if you do the go to a website like Rate City or something and do the mortgage calculator for someone on a five hundred thousand dollar loan, they're paying. Uh, around $12,000 extra in payments than they per annum than they were back in uh, April last year before the rate hike started. That that must have some uh, negative impact. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think, yes, we have to get used to the idea we are going to see a softer consumer, particularly as the, the reopening rush slows down. People are really happy to get out over Christmas and spend and go to restaurants because they couldn't do it the year before or the two years before. Um, now, I, I think that's largely run its course. And then it's, as that fades, then you will see a much weaker consumer. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. And I think, you know, I mean, the $12,000 you quoted is a big impact on, on a lot of people. But then we've also seen huge jumps in electricity, gas, insurance, things like that, which are basically necessities for everyone. You know, I mean, I've recently had a re- insurance renewal and it was 35% higher than a year ago. That's that's not seven percent inflation. Yeah, that, that's that's crazy. And I've had a few bills like that. Particularly, insurance is a is a key one. Sometimes, if you ring up, they might get it down a little bit, but you often have to reduce your level of cover um, to, to have any meaningful impact. And that that those sorts of things are quite onerous. Like I, I my family had a holiday over January in Tasmania. It costed four hundred dollars a day to rent a car. And you sort of think, oh, well, I haven't been on holiday for a while. <laughs> I'll pay the 400 But then after a while, you realise, well, that was a bit of a rip-off. Um, and I'm not going to do that again. You know, if that's, that's what I'm going to have to pay and the airfares were exorbitant as well, then I'm not going to do it. Um, I've had the holiday. Um, I'll opt for something a lot cheaper next time, drive myself there and stay in a motel. So it's <laughs> that people's behaviour will adjust to this. Yes. And I'm not someone who's under a lot of pressure. I'll admit, you know, I'm saved a bit over the years and recently financial shape sort of thing. But um, people who are, you know, have don't have the buffers, don't have free cash flow, they, they, they're going to start um, cutting back. Yeah, I'm just wondering how you fitted the four of you in a Ferrari. <laughs> that wasn't quite a Ferrari. I think it was, well, I think it was a Nissan. <laughs> um, Ferrari would have been nice. <laughs> 
One last that, 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 that's, that might have justified $400 a day for that, but this is just a regular, regular little SUV thing. <laughs> um, that's one last topic we haven't touched on, Shane, is the Aussie dollar. Um, you know, I mean, commodity prices have stayed high, not just energy, but as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be continued demand for things like metals with the, the, the move to a low carbon economy and so on. Where do you see the Aussie dollar going short term and, and longer term? Uh, well, short term is always hard to predict. It had a good run up over the Christmas period, like share markets did. Uh, obviously, a bit of op- not the Christmas period, the January period, but a lot of bit a bit of optimism there that uh, uh, things were suddenly on the mend globally on inflation front, and then now there's been a bit of a setback in the last few weeks, um, and the Aussie dollar's fallen back to around sixty seven cents, but uh, short term could still have some more downside, but I think ultimately it will head higher. You know, we, we, we saw a record um, or near record $14 billion current account surplus in uh, the December quarter when you and I were early in our careers. You know, the current account deficit was a major problem and that was a big negative for the Aussie dollar. Now we're running a surplus. And that, I think, is underpinned by high commodity prices and ultimately underpin um, a stronger Aussie dollar. So I think it's going higher from here, and by the end of the year, I think we'll probably be pushing up well above 70, probably pushing towards 75 US cents. Do you have a sort of fair value where you think you know the Aussie dollar should be? Well, my preferred model of fair value, because I can never get the other ones to work, is just purchasing power parity. Uh, and it only works every 10 years as the, <laughs> the currency is going to swing from one extreme to the other around it. Um, and right now it's around 73 US cents. Uh, and we are below that at, at just above 67 US cents as we're speaking today. Uh, we're, we're below that. So there's upside there to get to fair value. And then I think we'll go a bit beyond that. Normally, if the terms of trade was this high and the current account was in this sort of surplus and the trade balance was in this sort of surplus, you'd probably be looking at something towards parity. Um, but it's been partly offset by the Fed raising rates more than the Aussie, than the RBA has. And also there's a bit of a risk premium in there because of uncertainty about issues around China, obviously the trading relationship and also Australia's dependence on China. So uh, those two things have dampened it uh, relative to what you might normally have seen uh, if the fundamentals were this strong. Right. Thank you. Okay, well, look, we've covered a lot of uh, topics today and it's been fascinating. So, you know, I think if I can summarise, Shane's relatively optimistic. We're probably not heading for a recession in Australia, possibly only one more rate hike, but the Arbetian needs to stay the course because we don't want to head back to the 70s. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much to Shane Oliver from AMP for taking part in our podcast today. And lastly, a reminder that the IMAP portfolio conferences are coming up over the next few weeks in Melbourne and Sydney. These conferences will bring you the latest thinking from leading investment managers and help you to guide you in managing your clients' portfolios in what has been quite tough market circumstances. More details, including the agendas and how to register for the conferences, are on the IMAP website. <music>